Micah chapter 7, we left off in chapter 10. We're picking up in chapter 11. And again, there's an emphasis on the nation of Israel. There's a lot of people who don't really care to talk about the nation of Israel, but it's our example to us. If God wants to treat Israel this way, in loving them, in fulfilling His promises to them, in restoring them, then how much more does He want to do it for us? Amen? He wants to. And, and all the difficulty that, that Micah and Isaiah, his, Micah's contemporary and Hosea, and all the difficulty that the nation was going through because of the discipline that was necessary in their life, God's heart is to bring His kingdom on earth and restore. Verse 11, In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day... The decree shall go far and wide, and that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from the sea to sea and mountain to mountain, yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it for the fruit of their deeds. Again, verse 11, in that day when your walls are to be built. How many of you guys have seen the doom and gloom preachers? on the streets or wherever they are, and they always want to talk about judgment and they want to talk about sin and they want to talk about specific sins and lifestyles and et cetera, et cetera. But you never hear them talking about the God that wants to restore their lives to the people that they're preaching to. All they want to talk about is hell and judgment But the God that I know, the God that I serve, and the God that loves me is a God who desires to restore. He doesn't put out the smoldering flax. He doesn't break off a bent reed. Jesus takes the reed, he straightens it out, and he duct tapes it. (laughs) He gets it going in the right direction again which is the same thing He wants to do for us. And though sin may come in for a season, and though the consequences of sin in our life becomes evident, because we know, you and I both know, that when we subject ourselves to the sinful nature, there's always consequences to pay. And this wasn't just personal sin we talked about for the nation of Israel. This wasn't individual sin only. This was how they were treating each other. This was corporate sin. It was a society that was okay with doing bad things to each other. Sound familiar? And then we as the church, being the light, we are the ones who don't treat others poorly just because they're treating us badly, because we understand that God's desire for us is to demonstrate or mirror the love that he showed to us. And after everything that we went through, the judgment that's going to come, the discipline that's necessary, here we have in verse 11 that the walls will be built. Oh, how I wish the street preacher would say, repentance is necessary. Consequences of sin is evident, but God wants to restore and rebuild your life. God wanted to restore and rebuild Israel. He wanted them to continue to be the witness he called them to be, but he had to take them out for a little while to teach them a lesson so that they could better rightfully represent him 
to the whole world. In that day, the decree shall go far and wide. This isn't a personal in your bedroom restoration. I feel better about myself. I'm happy now. I'm healthy now. I have hope. This is a restoration that is going to be evident to everyone. This is why I really encourage people when it's time to get baptized. I talk to people and they say, can we just go to your house, pastor? Can't we just do it in your pool? I say, no way, Jose. This is a a chance for everybody to partake of a process of restoration that God's doing in your life that that is incredible. And God says, when I restore the nation of Israel, when I fulfill the promises that I've made to them, it's going to go far and wide. Everybody's going to know about it. In that day, they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, from sea to shining sea. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. You know, I, I want to be transparent. When I was younger, all I heard about all, was all the bad things that were happening in America. All I heard about was how terrible America was and how that back then Bill Clinton was the actual Antichrist and there were people who had scriptures to back that up, etc., etc. But you know what? As I get older, I find out that nothing's changed. You know, it's the people are saying the same things today that they were saying 20 and 30 years ago. Why are we so worried about it? Why are we so concerned? If we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, this earthly kingdom should have little effect on our lives, on our trajectory from a day-to-day basis. Because we know this kingdom isn't forever anyway. And yeah, we want uh, to be held accountable as a nation, but our hope as Christians isn't just that either God's going to bless America or curse America. Uh, Our our desire should be that in seeking God, He's going to restore us. He's going to restore us to a position that we can be His light around the whole world again. Not economically or politically or any of that garbage but for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he alone is worthy to be prayed. There is one point in history where the United States of America sent out more missionaries than any other country. That day is past. Statistically speaking, there are different countries that you may think you would never live in that send out more missionaries per capita than America does. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. This verse really caught my attention. Think about what the prophet Micah is saying. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwelt in it or dwell in it for the fruit of their deeds. What is Micah saying? Just because the sins of the nation of Israel needed to be addressed, they needed to be taken out, does not mean that God is done. The land is going to remain desolate. You remember the promises of God to the nation of Israel, they were all directly connected to the land. It was the land that was going to be the blessing for them. It was the land that was fruitful. It was the land that was their inheritance. And he says, when I bring you guys back, the land is going to remain desolate. Nobody's going to take your place. 
It's not like God's going to bring in a new chosen people and I kicked you guys out and I'm going to have them cultivate the land and get it all ready and, and it's going to be ready for you to step right in and take over again. No, but that does indicate that there's going to be a little bit more work for them in cultivating the land, doesn't it? Because if the land remains desolate the whole time, then the promised people or the, the inheritance is re-given back. Have you ever done yard work before? Ugh. Do you know the longer that you take to get that yard work done, you know what happens? The more work you got to do. It's like cleaning your bedroom <laughs> or cleaning your house. The longer you got to scrub that stain, the longer you've got to labor. And just because God is restoring the nation as he promised doesn't mean that they're going to be handed everything on a silver platter. There's, it's been a difficult life. There's been mistakes that have been made. There's accountability. There's repentance. There's restoration. But the land is desolate at the beginning, and it can be hard especially at the start. We need people, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, to come alongside, to lift up arms, to help each other. That's what we do as the body. And when you come up to a brother or you come up to a sister, there's no need to point out the desolation. You point out the promises of restoration. Right? You're not thinking or talking about yesterday. I, can't, I still can't believe you did that. What are you talking about? God has made all things new. I'm looking at today. I know what God's going to do tomorrow. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwells solitarily in a woodland. Prophet Isaiah writes to the nation of Israel 700 years later. 700 years later, Paul writes this to the Romans. Let's turn to Romans chapter 11. Keep that in mind. Anybody know how old the United States of America is? How many? Louder. Because I don't know. 250 years? 240? Good job. You know what the difference between 240 or 250 and 700 is? You can do the math. <laughs> it's not too hard, but I'm, I have, you know, I have issues with my brain. Romans chapter 11, 700 years later, God writes this about two two decades before the nation of Israel is displaced, displaced for the third time. And Titus, the emperor of the Roman army, marches in Jerusalem and tears down the temple. This is before that happens. But 700 years later, after Micah, chapter 11, the second part of verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says? Let's start in verse 1. I apologize. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people. 
whom he foreknew? Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, there is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What is Paul talking about? This is what he's saying. Paul has come to terms with the fact that Israel has been taken over by the Romans. That it's done. That they have control of Israel, that they are ruling over Israel. We see in the Gospels the relationship between the Roman commanders and the army, how Jesus was crucified, etc., etc. And this is before the actual fall of Jerusalem. Paul is saying, you know, God still loves his people and there's a restoration coming. Hate not even knowing in the near future that there was going to be a further uh, desolation or destruction of the nation because of sin. And you guys saw in the Gospels how they were treating each other. How the Sadducees and Pharisees were treating the people. The bondage and the yoke that they placed on the people. The rejection of the Messiah. Let's skip down to verse 11. I say then, they, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, this is the nation of Israel, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if they being cast away is the, is the reconciling of the world, that will be, what will be their acceptance be but life from death? This is what Paul's saying. What benefit do they have to be cast out forever? How much more the promises are fulfilled when God is true to his word? to the nation of Israel? You know, jealousy is powerful, a powerful thing. He says that God will provoke, may provoke uh, the children of Israel to jealousy because of how much he's blessing and revealing himself to the Gentiles. Wait a minute, God was supposed to be our God. We were the chosen people. What's going on? But now he's revealing himself to all these Gentile nations and they know him better than we know him? Wait, this is our God. This is how it started. Jesus is our Messiah and we want to get back on track with God, even if it takes that. A provocation. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. There's people who believe that God has nothing to do with the nation of Israel anymore. 
This is not true. Why do we talk about Israel so much? Because if God fulfills his promises to Israel, then God is just and true to fulfill his promises to us. If God makes everlasting, everlasting ordinances and promises with the people, the nation of Israel, and then he just decides, eh, you know what, forget about it. I never liked you guys in the first place. How would we feel? We don't serve a great, compassionate, loving, long-suffering, merciful God. We serve a God who can change his mind at a whim and isn't worthy to be praised because that's not righteous. That's not right. But God is righteous, and he does right. And just because there was no... You know, that, that, that's what happens when you translate the Bible by uh, society, socially. This is years ago, before the nation of Israel was reformed. They say, there's no nation of Israel. What are all these promises in the Bible that God's going to restore Israel? It's never going to happen. They're scattered everywhere. And God says, when I restore, it's going to be from the sea to sea, from the mountain to mountain. I'm going to proclaim it, and it's going to happen, and I'm going to show the whole world who I am through it. And somehow, the world doesn't want to address it. They don't want to recognize. Have you ever been praying for somebody before? You're praying for them, and you're like, God, reveal yourself to them. Do a work in their life. Show them who you are, and then something happens, and then something happens again, and they come, and they're like, well, I don't know if there's a God at all. And I'm like, what? God's expressly trying to reveal himself to you. I was talking to an atheist yesterday, and I said, well, you know, why would you, why would you, choose to be an atheist that doesn't seem smart to me and he said because there's no proof of god's existence that's what he said there's no proof i said there's no proof when i was driving here i'm driving down the the freeway with my whole family in the truck i'm doing like 75 miles an hour don't tell anybody i think it was 76 (laughs) but the cops don't care i shouldn't say that it was 74 for the record And I'm driving, right? And I see this car in the other lane coming, oncoming traffic. You know, he's coming. And I see, like, the the, the mountains and the sky and those big puffy clouds. And me driving and this other car driving. I'm like, somebody would have to be stupid to think that this is all just something that just happened. This This is clearly evidence of God. And that's what I told him. I said, clearly, I'm driving. This is evidence of God, you know. Can't you see, look around the things? He says, I don't see it that way. Well, yeah, how convenient. (laughs) God wants to reveal himself to you. God wants to teach you who he is. There has to be a willing heart. There has to be a willingness. The connection, again, of course, is that God is for real, and one of the ways that we can tell is that his desire is to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, and that he's going to continue. I shared this with our Wednesday night Bible study. We're in Exodus, going through the temple procedures and and whatnot. It's very interesting stuff, and I just read a news article last week that says that we're talking about the rebuilding of the temple and, and the temple worship and all that stuff. And I just read this article that was from News Out of Israel that said they've appointed the high priest. 
So I told, I told them a, few, a couple months ago that they were trying to, in the process of appointing the high priest, because until they appoint the high priest, they can't re-initiate the, the sacrificial system, right? And then and I said something else. I said, but, but even though the high priest is appointed and the people are appointed, uh, there still needs to be a temple that's rebuilt. Well, this news article just came out. And the top rabbis in Israel are saying that they don't need the temple to reinstitute the sacrifices. And they are as close away as one week from reinstituting the sacrificial service in the nation of Israel right now. And the head rabbi said, the only thing that is stopping us, we have everything else. We have the red heifer, we have the high priest, we have the priesthood, we have the ornamentation, the instruments, we have everything. And the only thing that's stopping us is the political temperature right now. And as soon as somebody says that we may, we are going to. That's crazy. Honestly, I didn't think they were ever going to be able to start the sacrificial system in Israel again. What does that mean? It means that God is bringing full restoration like he said he was going to. You know what the seven-year tribulation is known as? Jacob's trouble. It's not going to get better for Israel. It's going to get worse, but God has a remnant in store that are going to be demonstrated as his people when the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies and desecrates and commits the abomination of desolation, which is the catalyst for Jesus Christ to return. Now, I'm not trying to scare anybody or anything like that. Jesus loves you. He knows that you have plans. You know, you want to do this. You really like, you really want to see that 2018 Tacoma when it comes out. Me too. Me too. It's going to be sweet. But we can trust on God's timing for everything. We don't have any kind of an inkling of what it's going to be like to, to see as we are seen, to see him face to face. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's ministries that have been started over this verse, churches, until the whole world hears. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, the church age as we know it, the Gentiles knowing God and representing God on earth comes to an end, then starts the seven-year tribulation or Jacob's trouble, which is a catalyst for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not the rapture, we're talking about the second coming of the king of kings and the judge. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now here's the key verse. It's in two verses from here. It took a minute to get here, but thank you for hanging on with me. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. What does that mean? Again, it means we don't serve a God who flip-flops like the politicians we get to hear, change his mind based on you know, how spicy the pizza was he had for lunch, 
He doesn't change his mind. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God gave the nation of Israel gifts to represent him. God gave the nation of Israel a calling to represent him. And those gifts and calling that he gave them are irrevocable. It means they cannot be taken away. And thankfully, by the grace of God, this verse applies to us as well. We go through life and we make mistakes. And sometimes we think we do things that disqualify us from loving others, disqualify us from representing God rightly. But that is false and it's a lie from the enemy. The gifts and call of God are irrevocable in your lives as well. And we wake up every morning, we get to make a decision and say, we are either going to walk in the Spirit or we're going to walk in the flesh. When we walk in the Spirit, we're able for the gifts and calling of God to be demonstrated powerfully through our lives. When we walk in the flesh, we prohibit the Spirit from exhibiting the gifts and calling in our life. So pick which one you want to do. Stop doing the sin. Don't allow yourself to go into the, the spiral again, the, the, the downward mayday crash. Stop. God has gifts for you. He has a calling. You've made mistakes. He's going to pick you up. He's going to restore you, and he's going to allow you to be a representative that you never thought you could be before, ever. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have you now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have been now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that they might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. When I make a statement like, like Paul just did, I should follow it up with that too. <laughs> He, he prohibited some to show mercy on others, and then as the mercy's been given, he prohibits them from you know, coming to the completion of, of what the promises are so that he can show mercy to the other. Oh, how great is the wisdom of God. He's using the whole thing together. It's not just about me. Who knew? It's not just about me, what I want in life. It's the big picture that God has for everybody. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's turn back to Micah. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. What is this? This is a plea to the good shepherd. <laughs> when you talk into God, you say, you are a good shepherd, and I'm asking you to lead me in your way. Quiet my soul. Make me lie down in green pastures. You're the good shepherd. I was talking to a brother recently who's struggling a little bit in ministry. He just says, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. It's tough. I said, I know, man. I love ministry. I love teaching God's word. I love the Bible. There's only one thing about ministry that I really don't like. People. 
Just kidding. That's what ministry is. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. You know why there's a diametrically opposed idealism in Scripture between sheep and goats? Because goats are independent. Goats can take care of themselves. Sheep are stupid. They stink. They bite. I have a good friend who's a pastor in New Zealand where there's more sheep than people in New Zealand. And we go back and forth and he talks about the shepherd's heart and the, and the care that the shepherd gives the sheep. God didn't call us to be keepers of goats where people are doing their own thing, they've got it together, they can figure it out themselves, they'll just eat your underwear if you leave it outside and they're hungry. They will. That's why they're devil's animals. He said, I've called to make you shepherd of sheep. I've called to, to have you feed and to care and to tend and to lead. And the cry of our heart shouldn't be for a shepherd in a church. It's the good shepherd because I need the good shepherd in my life today. And I could be confident in his goodness when I say to him, God, lead me beside quiet waters. Restore my soul. Make a table in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. That's what the good shepherd does. He cares for those who are dependent on him. Sheep have to be dependent on the shepherd. Goats are not dependent on the shepherd. That's why when the end of the times come in, God is going to separate, he says, the sheep from the goats. What does that mean? He's going to separate those people who are dependent on him and those who are not dependent on him. They don't need Jesus. They can do it themselves. They can uh, uh, adhere to some kind of institutionalized religion. No, we can't. We don't need rules and regulations and institutionalized religion. We need Jesus. We need the good shepherd. You don't see him here talking about the law. I can't wait until the law is applied in my life again. He's talking about the shepherd. And then the, the reminiscing of how the shepherd took care of them in the past. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see, the nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. The deliverance of the nation of Israel today is going to be like that when God delivered them from Egypt. And you know the whole known world either saw or heard about the powerful things that God did for his nation, the children of Israel. And it's going to happen as in the days when they came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. I think of the silly things I put my hand over my mouth about. You know, the new iPhone was just announced. And they're going down the spec. I'm like, oh, it's going to be so cool. iPhones are awesome. You notice he says there, the nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. You think of the power. Sorry for all you Android lovers, okay? I just got to get that out there. 
Think of all the power and the might that the world has that it's able to display. And they flex their muscles at each other. Hey, I've got a missile silo close to you, and I've got this many nukes, and I'm ready to make nukes, and this is like ultimate power, right? And God's like, when I demonstrate my purpose for the nation of Israel, you are going to be ashamed of your power nations. You're going to think what you have is nothing. Because I don't care how many nukes you have, you can't take a body of water like the Red Sea and make it stand up in a heap and dry the bottom. We still can't wrap our head around that. He says, the nations are going to be ashamed at their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. God's serious about this business. And then this is the... This is really the, the verse of the book of Micah. If you want to know what sums up the whole book, this is, this is the verse. You can circle it and underline it. Verse 18, who is a God like you? With everything considered, the sin, the consequences, the restoration, God's presence in the earth and how he's going to demonstrate his power. And, and the prophet Micah says, who is a God like you? It's a play on words because the name Micah means who is a God like Yahweh? He's saying his own name. Who is a God like Yahweh? Pardoning iniquity passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. Now, when you would say, who is a God like God or who is a God like Yahweh, you would think about the great and mighty things that you could conceive that God could do, right? His mighty works, how awesome and powerful he is. Like we talked about, the mountains and the seas and the parting of the sea and all the crazy stuff God is able to do and recognize him for his might and for his power. But what's the next verse? actually say about how powerful and mighty God is forgiving iniquity forgiving iniquity I don't know about you guys but it's hard for me to forgive people who do something to me to take advantage or a sin against me before I was a believer forget about it I would I would daydream of becoming an assassin Dude, you cut me off, bro. I'm going to find out who you are. I'm going to follow to you. To your, you know two words, car bomb. I'm going to take care of business. Forgiveness is hard. And even as believers, we have to navigate and work through how we deal with others sinning against us and how forgiveness is, is applied and demonstrated because we've received forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Amen? We say, how does this work? And I don't really want to forgive these people, but, but the Bible says that if I don't forgive others, then God doesn't forgive me. Because that's how important it is to God. An all-powerful, almighty God, one of the most uh, incredible demonstrations of His might is to look, at the sinner, to look at the sinner, to look at you and I, and say, I forgive you. Not only do I forgive you, but I will pay the price for your sinfulness. 
I will restore you in righteousness by my power. That's, that's too much for me. That's too great. Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. <laughs> he doesn't retain his anger Again, that's what I would like to do before, retain my anger. Have you ever been mad at somebody for something? And, and it could be years go by. Years. And the longer time goes by, the more that it festers and you're upset and you're frustrated. And then the day comes, by the grace of God, that you're able to talk about it with that person. And, they, and, and you say, and you did this and that, and remember this and that. And they're like, I, I don't remember any of that. It wasn't malicious. I'm really sorry. And you're like, you're what? You can't be sorry. I've been mad at you too long. <laughs> no. Make a mountain out of, oh, make a, yeah. Make something bigger than it is. A mountain out of a molehill. God does not retain his anger forever. You think God has the ability? I don't think he does like in his person, in his nature. But he doesn't want to. God doesn't want to retain his, his anger because he delights in mercy. Remember that other verse that, that we read? He loves being merciful. He doesn't just like it. He doesn't just think it's cool or a good idea or I'll do it this time because I have to. He loves it. He delights in it. It's an ingredient for God's heart and intention in restoration. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. There's a few different verses that God references what he does with sin in the Bible. One of them that we've talked about recently is that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And the length of distance between the east and the west is indefinite. You will never get in an airplane and start going west and ever start going east. You will always be going west. But if you get in an airplane and start going north, how long till you start going south? Till you get to the North Pole. And God didn't say, I separate you as far as your sins are the north from the south, where there is a measurable distance. He says the east and the west, where there, it's, it's immeasurable. Think of the context in this day and age of what the sea meant to the people. The sea, you know, nobody knows what's at the bottom of the sea. You can't go down there. Now we kind of, you know, oh yeah, at the bottom of the sea, God's going to throw our sins down there or whatever. And, then, and, and we take a submarine and we can go look at our sin. No. <laughs> you go too deep in the sea, in the ocean, you die. I used to go spearfishing when we lived in Croatia with my neighbor. My neighbor and I would go out together and we would go down to the sea and we would go spearfishing. And the thing is that you can only go so deep physically. It's only physically possible to go so deep. You can't go any deeper. It will kill you. 
And if you go to a depth without any equipment, because we didn't wear any equipment except for a snorkel and a spear gun, if you go to a depth that's dangerous for you and then surface too quickly, that can kill you as well. So what was God saying when he said, I'm tossing your iniquities in the sea? I'm taking it, I'm putting it somewhere where even you can't retrieve it. Like Jesus said, he said, it's better for uh, somebody to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. There was power. There was something that was unknown, unidentifiable. Because when God deals with something, he deals with it for good. He doesn't come back. And by his grace, he allows us to experience that on a daily basis. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word through your prophet Micah in the Old Testament. We love how rich and full of life your word is to us. Lord, we receive the message that you have for us today and the message that you have for our hearts every day, that there's, there's a passion for reconciliation, that once we've been reconciled, you continue to deal with us and bless us and care for us and demonstrate that mercy that you so love to distribute. And that even when sin comes in for a season and consequences are necessary because we must reap what we sow, the passion of your heart is for mercy to be the ingredient for restoration so we again can have a right relationship with you. God, we pray that that be the case for us today. We thank you for the example and the living illustration that the nation of Israel is for us. We ask you, Lord, that we would be able to process these things and digest them and give them to others this week as we meditate on your mercy and your goodness. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.